Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Late Lunch, brought to you by Blackstone Motors' Summer Sales Event. Get low as can be, APR, zero deposit, and finance arranged within four hours. There's never been a better time to get to Blackstone Motors, Dundalk, Drogheda, or Cavan. You're very welcome to a brand new week of Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Straight to business today, the FAI's Festival of Football hits me this week, ahead of the Football Association's AGM in Trim on Saturday. And while the week is a celebration of soccer and its clubs in the Royal County, there's precious little to be happy about off the field around the corridors of power in Abbottstown, the FAI's headquarters. He's written about it extensively in today's Irish Daily Star. I'm joined on the line by Paul Lennon, their football correspondent. Afternoon, Paul. Good afternoon, Jerry. Thanks for taking my call. More revelations in the Sunday Times yesterday on finances and your writing today in the paper about a massive bailout. How much money do you reckon the FAI will need? Well, they, uh, they have agreed a deal with the with UEFA that they can take twenty five up to twenty five million euro from UEFA to get them over financial uh, problems they have now <clears throat> and over the next, I would think, probably the next six, eight, maybe 12, 18 months. That's, that, that shows you the extent of the cash flow problems in the FEI. As you say, Jerry, it's, it's always, you know, the FEI, does, it's, there are always extremes. There are contrasts. Uh, Tom Mohan's under-19 team are now in the semi-finals of the European Championship. That's an incredible performance, given that they're without most of their best players, including young uh, young Troy Parrott, the Spurs player who played for them yesterday for Spurs yesterday. You know, the festival of football in need this week, which is a great celebration, and it shows how, how just how extensive and how how. Uh, impressively the growth has been in, in, in football in mean in the last 30 to 35, 40 years. So all that good stuff is going on, but it's hamstrung by this ongoing this ongoing issue of the way the, the Football Association was run for years, the way it's managed its finances. So hence, they have to go cap in hand to UEFA looking for 25 million uh, euro to tie them over for the next few months. And then there's the ongoing issues with uh, trying to rectify all the all the absolute madness of of recent years and the way, unfortunately, the football association was so badly run. Now that money is ginormous. It's a huge amount of money, and who knows where it'll end? Because there's investigations going on there uh, by the Office of Corporate Enforcement. That's to come out later on in the year. I take it UEFA are going to bail them out to this degree anyway. Does that come at the expense of future income for the association? It, it does. That's that's one of the, the the problems. It is. It's not a one off um grant 
it's it comes out of future money that the that the FBI get from UEFA. Um, years ago, when uh, the FBI hosted a big game, a big international, senior international in, in Lansdowne or, or the Aviva, if they had Germany or Spain or any one big country, you flog the TV rights for a load of money. You might get five, ten million for one game. That's huge money. Now it's all centralised. So UEFA have all the rights to 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 the to the games, and they pay you an annual fee. It's roughly somewhere between 10 and 12 million euro per year now, and there's other grant money. So UEFA would give the FEI maybe 12, 13, 14 million annually in, 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 in money that the FEI is completely entitled to, as to every other federation in, in Europe. But what you, you're, what you said is right, Jerry. This grant money, or this money they're now receiving from UEFA, is, is, is an early drawdown of future income. So it, it kicks the can down the road to some extent uh, to finally addressing the problems because there's also the stadium debt and other debts that are somewhere in the region of 35 million. Mm. So uh, it's sadly, it's, um, it's, it's not a good story from, from uh, off the pitch for the FBI. No, it's similar to the financial bailout we had uh, when the crash happened in Ireland uh, to a lesser degree, of course, it has to be said, with the FBI. Now, this rush to pass the new rules happened at the weekend. The, AG, the EGM convened and they passed these rules. Good or bad business? It's in theory, it's good, but uh, I, I had reservations about it. I wrote that in Star last week. I still have reservations because they rushed it through. And there are problems there that they've admitted now. They're going to have to hold a lot more EGMs in the next few years to rectify and tweak things that they didn't get right. That was The, the rules were passed the other day. So they're going to have to reconvene these things. So I think that's silly. They should have just t- taken a longer time frame and done it at an easier pace. Go in, have a look at what they needed to, need to do and do it properly in October and November. They did tweak a few rules to, uh, uh, in, in the last few weeks to, to placate certain uh, elements of the game, the school boys, the juniors. So they all voted for this at the weekend. So in theory, yes, it was good. But there are still loads of other problems. And the way the game is run, you've got to have three people on the old board going for re-election this weekend. John Early, uh, who's a board member, you have uh, the, the uh, president, Donald Conway, and the vice president, Noel Fitzroy, and they all want to stay on the board, even though they've been on the board f- for various times in the last, Conway on it for the best part of 16 years, Fitzroy for two and a half, for six months, uh, uh, um, the third early for three years. The sports minister and Sport Ireland want them all to go. So again, to solve one problem, kind of like one step forward, two steps back, the, the, the minister and sport Ireland want them all to go. The FBI are insisting that three of them stay on for continuity. I just think it's crazy. They should all go, bring in new people, new faces, new energy, new blood, and address it that way because there's still a mountain of work. I think, sadly, Jerry, that the FBI, for the FBI to overcome both its financial and organisational problems, it's going to take two, three, four years organisationally wise, and financially it's going to take 10, 15, 20 years. This... Uh letter or correspondence is it there that was produced the weekend by the FAI in defence of in a way having continuity where they said UEFA FIFA have been in touch to say listen your minister your uh, Sport Ireland people in government have no right to interfere whatsoever and if they do we could suspend you from international football what do you make of that? They're a complete red herring that's a rule that FIFA and UEFA have to stop despots, governments in, in, 
in Africa, Asia, Central America, it sometimes happens that the, the, a dictator or a government in a certain country will appoint uh, maybe a brother of the of the dictator or a son or a, a relation as as the, as the president of the local federation. So every so often you get a country uh, suspended from FIFA or UEFA. I mean, usually FIFA hasn't. I think Ukraine was the last one threatened by it in Europe. That's what this rule is about. It's not about a a sovereign democratic government uh, asking legitimate questions about the way the FEI is run. That's what. Uh, the, the government in Sport Ireland are doing. That's different from what the, the FEI interpretation is. So it's a load of baloney. Uh, the FEI, this is a smokescreen used by the FEI to try and deflect attention from their ongoing issues. And they'd be better off addressing the, this, the core issues and how to rectify all the problems of football rather than coming up with this, this you know, you know, silly bugger stuff that Jack Chowdhury used to call it. How can you have an AGM where your accounts won't be presented? And as you said, there are people who have been there for some time who've been part of a regime that obviously uh, has presided over all that is uh, coming out now bit by bit uh, through these investigations and great journalism, I have to say, as well. How can there be an AGM? Can they not just uh, meet and and adjourn it and, and push it down the road? That's what I believe that's what they're going to do is, is go to hold elections to certain positions on the, on the new FAI board this, this Saturday in, in Trim. Uh, and there will be one or two other issues dealt with. Obviously, there's no, no account, so all that aspect of the AGM will be adjourned until October, November, at a point then that the accounts have been presented, when two or three of the plethora of investigations uh, will probably have been concluded or mainly concluded. So at that stage, to be better view, again, that ties into my earlier point, they should have postponed, uh, you, know, you know, left all this AGM business to later in the year when there was a clearer picture, when people could have a better assessment of what has gone on and then, um, you know, hold your, your AGM, your EGMs. Just before you go, this is the pertinent point here. Donald Conway, who's been president, who is president at the moment, seeking re-election, has been there for a long, long time. And the other two guys you mentioned there, they're giving the two fingers to the Minister and Sport Ireland at the moment. They really just are digging their heads in the sand. After, you know, there was talk that they had, especially Donald, uh, had had said that he was going to step down. Um, Is that going to continue or who's going to win that war? The, I, I think it's going to intensify before Friday, uh, sorry, before Saturday, um, and I think one or two, if not all three, will will will, st- will step away from the elections on on, uh, on Saturday. Uh, but I think they're so stubborn about this, the FEI. I have a feeling one or two will stay on, and that will then just trigger another crisis with with um, the minister. And after all, the minister has now suspended two important streams of of uh, grant money and annual funding for, for the FEI. There's one further large uh, tranche of money that goes into football in every sport each year. That's to smaller for, for club grants for junior football, for small GA clubs, rugby, athletics, etc. That hasn't been turned off yet. I think if this continues, that'll be the next tap, funding tap that the government and Sport Ireland will, will uh, turn off. OK, we watch this space. Paul, thank you for joining me today on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. Not at all. Paul Lennon there, football correspondent with the Irish Daily Star. And you can read what he has to say in today's paper. You know, I was thinking about this myself um, in in the last 24 hours or so. And I, I think about the staff and the people who work for the FAI and the pay cuts they had to accept 
that I, I don't think they were ever restored. They may have been slightly restored back to them as well. How are they feeling or how have they been feeling when they read all of this? And I can tell you, I know for a fact, they were paid small money. A lot of people paid very small money within the FAI, not on big salaries at all. The other thing is, we talked about uh, the Irish Greyhound Board and the, the RTE expose of where dogs who weren't up to speed or got old were transported to. And look at the hoorah that that brought uh, on social media and reaction of the public as well, and is still having on uh, Board Nagon and, and the Greyhound people. What about the sponsors? Sponsors have pulled away. What about the FAI sponsors? Are they looking at this situation? You know, the sponsorship that they give. And and, and is that in jeopardy? You know, it's, it's for dogs, yes, and I rightly agree with it. There should be no mistreatment of animals. But this is an absolute scandal, a lot of this. And sponsors are in there, big sponsors. Come on, I'm sure they have to be looking at this as well. That is another issue as well uh, for the Football Association. But you know what it does come down to? It comes down to the grassroots. And I encourage you to read a piece written by Eamon Sweeney. Back page, hold the back page in yesterday's Sunday Independent. You should read it. Because the grassroots need to waken up in Irish football and smell the coffee. And I'll just read you the last wee paragraph. Eamon's been talking about what happened in the GAA around the opening of Croke Park when the body politic, the Art Stewart and the, the Central Council of the GAA didn't want to open up Croke Park to soccer when the FAI were in real need. They had no stadium with the redevelopment of Lansdowne Road. And within a number of days, the grassroots, the clubs rose up against the GAA and in a very short time, Sean Kelly, its then president, changed their tune and that historic vote was taken and the rest is history. But Sweeney says in the final paragraph, and I'll just read these words to you before we go to the break, maybe Irish soccer deserves John Delaney and a presidential election with one candidate and an association which has problems getting its books done. Maybe the grassroots are happy acting like serfs instead of citizens and allowing their game to be run in this way. Have you no shame? I mean, look at yourselves. Come on. And that message goes out loud and clear to soccer people right around this country, the North East and beyond. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio this afternoon. And up next, we have a very happy sports story. Yes, I was in Portrush on Friday. I followed Shane Lowry for about 12 holes. And he did it yesterday. We're going to talk about him next. Ten years ago, he did it at Baltray, just out the road from us here, when as an amateur he won the Irish Open. I'll never forget it. And imagine a decade on, he's won the Open Championship. What a win for Shane Lowry yesterday. 15 under, six shots ahead of Tommy Fleetwood. I was glued. I was up there, as I said, on Friday in Port Rush, following him for a good part of the day. Joining me on the line to reflect is John Byrne. He's the head professional at Royal Tower Golf Club. Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon, Jerry. Thanks for taking my call. John, context this. What does this mean for Irish golf? Jerry, it's just it's astronomical. I don't think people realise how important or what this means to to the game in Ireland. Like as we've spoken on many occasions in the past about decline, how the game has been struggling. So a boost like this is just it's magnificent. It's badly needed. Even here this morning in the club, juniors, people of all ages coming in, everyone's 
genuinely delighted that Shane has won this event and it's got people talking about golf again and it will bring people back out onto our fairways, I've no doubt. Isn't that just great to hear and the children responding as well because that's what we need, new blood in the game. John, I was above on Friday and I followed him and he, he played really well and talk about Saturday then, a new course record he set. Do you know when you're stepping up on the first team, final day and you have a four-shot lead, there must be a tightness in the belly no matter what you say as you go to tee off. Absolutely, Jerry. there is. Even if I stand up here on a Tuesday afternoon, I see <laughs> He was standing up there, and I don't know if you heard one of his interviews, he, he spoke about a guy he played in the North of Ireland there in 2008 who shanked it off the first tee and lost his ball. And Shane actually admitted, he said, I couldn't get that out of my head. He said, that's all I, all I could think about, which was a dreadful swing thought on the first tee of any major championship. So, but he dealt with it, and he, he was just astounding how good he was. He was outstanding. And, and the day yesterday, John, don't have to tell you about Irish weather, but it was four seasons in one day. My, at times, the rain, it looked like play might have been stopped. It got that serious with uh, rain on the greens, but they continued on and he battled on. He would have had a good grounding as a young fella in the amateur circuit with those conditions. Yeah, Jerry, he would definitely. Um, but it was one thing I found, I suppose, some of the commentators, you know, they were really insisting on that and trying to get that point across. But Tommy Fleetwood would have a much a far greater um, foundation from that point of view. He was born and bred in Liverpool, Brookdale, Lynx Golf Course, or Shane, obviously, from Esker Hills. Um, you know, not quite the same. He would obviously have an experience, but none of us like to play in the rain, you know. So um, it definitely would have stood to him anyway. But I, I didn't want it to take anything away from his win. Yeah, and when you looked yesterday, wasn't it unbelievable, you know, to know... When you see... Here's the one thing caught my attention, John. The engraver had his name on the trophy. I think he was on the 17th, and they were... You know, there was no holding back here. He was engraving it, and here he is walking down so far ahead. What a feeling to walk up that 18 to that final gallery. It must have been incredible. Although I think, Jerry, a lot of Irish people would have engraved it on Friday evening. Uh, were, <laughs> everyone had given it to him. There was a long way to go at that stage. But like for Shane to have that cushion, it must have been phenomenal to have that. And I think he was so grateful. He was so... It was just incredible how, how down-to-earth he was about it and so level-headed. Like It was, it was as if... It was the, the, the enormity of what he had achieved. Obviously, he's more than aware of that, but it was as if he had no idea what he had done, you know? And to win it on home soil here on the island of Ireland the first Open Championship in 68 years it was nearly written in the stars but did you ever hear I've been at a few Opens uh, of course it's 68 years this could be the first one I was at in this country but I've travelled for them over to the UK and Scotland I don't think I ever remember such a raucous reception it was outstanding. To be honest, it reminded me of Harrington's one uh, yeah. in Liverpool. It was very similar to that because, as we know, look, the Irish golf supporters, or the Irish in any sport, they're you know, they're incredible supporters of it. Like I said, though, uh, you know, traffic up and down, the pathway to Port Rush must have been worn out yesterday. It was incredible scenes, and I think it was great for the tournament because with Tiger bowing out and Rory obviously bowing out, I was afraid it would be a bit of a dead duck of an event. And for Port Rush, they may, you know, if they didn't get a, a big event, it might be included again on the road. So I think Shane has solidified Port Rush also as a venue because it was such a good event. The support was so good. You know, the Open, the RNA, there's, there's no way they won't be able to consider um, Port Rush again going forward in the future. And they'll be maintained on the road, hopefully, within that, that very special uh, group of courses. Oh, won't that be wonderful? His game, though, has come on in leaps and bounds. And, you know, funny, listening to him yesterday, he said he's more relaxed about the game now than ever, and maybe that's the key. But his short game, pitching and putting, it's just sublime. It's incredible. And, again, like when we have all our coaches here, we juniors here, even this morning, we have a camp on going as well, and that's what we try and saw. The short game was just... It was incredible. I think the short out of the 17th on Thursday, for me, was, was the real 
you know, put the nail in the coffin when he hit that incredible drive down 17, down a bottleneck fairway, pitched in stone dead. I think he was just chipping around with his mates, tapped it in for another birdie, and that set him up then uh, for Sunday afternoon. So I just think his short game played a huge role. But Shane is renowned for his short game. But again, his, his long game was also was also phenomenal. You don't win major championships unless every part of your game is sublime. Absolutely. John, I'll let you away there. I know you're busy. Thank you for taking our call. And uh, youngsters, you know where to go. John Byrne will welcome you at open arms to Royal Tower. And you could be the next Shane Larry. Who knows? John, thanks a million again. Thank you, Jerry. Thank Take you. care of yourself. Bye-bye. That's John Byrne there, head professional at the beautiful Royal Tara Golf Club. We're heading towards news and uh, weather at two o'clock and we'll head there with a special song. It's a special song today because if you check out social media, you'll see him. The Open Champion, Shane Lowry, as he belted it out last night with the claret jug and his caddy and all his friends. This is for you, Shane. By a lonely prison wall I heard a young girl calling Michael, they have taken you away For you stole Trevelyan's corn So the young might see the morn Now a prison ship lies waiting in the bay Low lie the fields of Athenry where once we watched the small free birds fly Our love was on the wing We had dreams and songs to sing Hi, Jerry, says Derek. The FAI should be scrapped completely and anyone associated with it barred from future involvement. Call in a panel of ex-footballers led by Niall Quinn, give them a blank piece of paper and let them set up a new FAI from grassroots to finance, ensuring reasonable salary rates are paid all round. Well, Derek, I suppose it's a hope of yours, but scrapped? No, that won't happen. But it is very important that the grassroots members right across the board in the football family get real on this situation and they can make the changes and it will take more time as we heard Paul Lennon say a little bit earlier on Kevin's been on from Navin to say fair play to you Jerry. you hit the nail on the head the grassroots of Irish soccer has to stand up and be counted I think John Delaney should have resigned uh, instead of taking leave with pay I'm sure there are many clubs that could have done with that money indeed they could thanks indeed for that Kevin if you have any comments or anything to say don't forget our usual numbers 086 658 by WhatsApp or text 1850 if you'd like to call in or across our social media platforms. Now, hundreds of bouncy castle operators are facing going out of business following a decision by the industry's main UK-based insurance provider to withdraw from the Irish market, and it's affecting people locally here in the northeast. We talked with before we talked about it before with Linda Murray and insurance. This is another angle and a sad one as well that we're hearing in the last few 
days. I'm joined on the line by a man we've spoken to before, Jerry Frawley, who's from the Irish Inflatable Hires Federation. He's based in Navin. And Shane McBride is with us as well. He's co-owner of Pelican Promotions in Dundalk. Jerry, if I could start with yourself, why is this company in your book pulling away? Uh, hiya, Jerry. Yeah, I, we, we've been dealing with it for quite a long time, and I just think uh, that it has become uneconomically un- viable for them to offer cover in the in the Republic of Ireland, and that is really due to our excessive awards uh, uh, to injury in injury cases. This has been flagged uh, to various people, including politicians, for a long, long time. And we've been fighting it off for quite a long time. And uh, the politicians decided to do nothing about it on, until uh, until this disastrous situation is made by uh, Leisure Insurance. It's in fact their insurers, which is AXA XL, who have pulled out. And they made a statement to say that they don't think the operation is viable in the Republic. And that again comes down to this point of awards in court for insurance claims. How how serious is this? How significant are these people when it comes to insuring? You know your members in the business. Are they bigger? They are they a big the larger part of it? In fact, uh, Jerry, they're the only ones available. Really? To, yeah, and they have been for many years now. Years ago, there was various different people uh, available to the market. And there was, in fact, competition. Uh, for more than five years now, uh, they've had, Leisure Insure have had a monopoly on the situation, and there was nobody else you could go to. Um, I believe that if it was viable, they would stay in the market, and it is not. Uh, we discussed with them... Um, in a lot of ongoing discussions with them, that there was uh, a situation where uh, they were hoping to to do better, but in the end they couldn't. We quoted the government's proposed legislation changes that are ongoing, which are and they described them, which I agree with, as too little and too late. So we're still in the si- same situation, dealing with a litigious uh, society in Ireland, and we're suffering the consequences now. Let me bring uh, my other guest on, on this one, Shane McBride from Pelican Promotions, into the conversation. Afternoon, Shane. How are you, Jerry? Thanks for having me on. Uh, thank you for taking our call. Tell us what this means. You're based in Dundalk. How many people do you employ? We currently employ 28 people um, on a full-time and part-time basis. And you have said, is this a fact, you've said that your business is in jeopardy now? Absolutely, it is, yeah. Um and it has been, like Jerry said, an issue going forward. But like also Jerry said, it's just too little too late. We got word um, only last week that they are not renewing any policy. So we will have no choice but to to close up unless this issue is sorted. 28 jobs. Look at all the joy you bring to so many people because you've quite a number of castles and inflatables. How many would you have? Us, personally, we have over 200 um, inflatables and games and activities. That's huge. And if that is gone tomorrow, people will suddenly feel the effects of this for their birthday parties and occasions, I'm sure, as well. Yeah. And is it true to say, just clarify this for me, you must insure each one of those individually, is that it? Not for ourselves. Um, because our range is so wide, we 
we have what's known as a blanket policy. Okay. Covers our entire fleet, our entire range. Right. Um, we are lucky enough that we don't particularly have to insure each and every one of them. Right. Um, but now in saying that, you know, with the range, is it's it's not even logistically possible to put them all in one particular day. Mm. It's just we were fortunate enough to have the policy and have the avail and the have the availability to to supply that range to our customers and clients. Oh, this, I know that there are people though that do them individually as well, but you have that different type of policy. Now, tell me this. You're staring the blank wall here. They're not going to renew starting from August. When does your policy run out with them? Our policy, believe it or not, only lasts until the 13th of August. So we, oh, Lord. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, we are one of them, probably the worst off in the sense that it's, um, we have no time. So we are, we are stuck. So you're really, we have, really... We have, we have requested an extension, and um, at this moment we have no um, confirmation on that. But like I say, it's an angle we're working at, even only just to get the season through mm. and to cover the bookings that we already have in. Yeah, but you're in real trouble here. Thirteenth of August, my word! So that's uh, less than a month, well, less than a month away at the, at this stage. Jerry, back to you. Thank Can you do anything for your members, uh, uh, such well, as Shane? Yeah. That's unfortunate for Shane, and I know uh, Pelican have been in the business a long, long time. Uh, that's really unfortunate. It's just a matter of luck who comes first, because uh, we have so, some other big operators whose policy is up on the 4th of August, and they just about missed uh, the deadline, and they're going to suffer as well. And there's other people like ourselves that go right on until next June or July, and so it's not too bad. Okay, so what we're doing on a positive note, uh, Jerry, is... We are organising the IIHF back as a group again, and we're requesting everybody, and most people, a lot of people have done it already, to send us an email with their terms, with their details. Uh, and we are putting a very large group together, and we're currently in discussions with a, a broker in Dublin who's dealing with another UK insurer. And all we can say is we're putting all the details to them, and we're getting each individual member's uh, details of their business, how much business they, they do. And we're going to get all of this to the broker and to the insurer in London so they can assess the risk in our particular side of the industry and they can look at that and see can something be done. We're working very hard to do that, but we are hopeful. We are hopeful that it will be done and we're going to make a tremendous effort in that area. You have to remember that the leisure business, they put Leisure Insure and AXA XL are pulled out of the Republic of Ireland because of those reasons. But it isn't specific, absolutely, to bouncing castles. Now, we're not privy to the data that, uh, to decide what was the payout or what wasn't uh, and uh, how that works. But we are going to uh, make an assessment of our own risk here. Uh, as an organisation, we're going to present that to a UK insurer. This seems to be our only hope. And that's what we're doing at the present time. A question for you, just I'll say with you, Jerry, just for a second, um, from a listener. Can you continue to operate if the homeowner undertakes to put bouncy castle on their bouncy castle on their home insurance to take the liability? That's a really good question, Jerry, and that has come up over the years and years and years. And there's two answers, and two parts of that. And the answer is yes. Of course they can, and you will be insured on the, under the homeowner's policy. If uh, the uh, inflatable operator is uh, liable for some reason for the accident, 
Well, then the, it is our experience that the homeowner's insurance company will turn around and sue the inflatable operator. Okay. So the inflatable operator still needs insurance right. okay. as such, in case they do something. Yes, I understand. Bad. I understand. That's it was a good question. You know, somebody just take it outside no. the box to see, can they help this situation? Yeah. So back to, back to Shane for a moment. This it's is really... If I, if I can actually just jump yeah. on to that one, if you don't mind. Yeah. I have got word this morning from our own insurance broker who have told me that obviously our underwriter is AXA XL. AXA, as far as I'm aware, now I can't quote 100%, have refused um, homeowners to add Benson Castle to the okay. policy. Mm. For themselves. Now, that's not a, obviously across the board for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay, I, I hear what you're saying. So that's, that's an update on that one there. Now, the thing is this. If you don't succeed or if Jerry and, his, uh, and your uh, umbrella organisation uh, doesn't manage to make this happen, you will close on the 13th of August. Pelican. Yeah, we will. We will have no choice, um, because obviously, you know, uh, you couldn't afford to even dream of taking the risk in case there was the genuine accident where a child was hurt. You need to have the confirmation from your insurance company. You need to have the support from an insurance company to be able to operate, and you just it wouldn't be viable to run without it. Final word to Jerry. Well, Jerry, just on this one. Well, first of all, to say that if Pelican uh, have to close down and leave the market, I think that would be a very, very sad day for our industry. Yeah. And it looks like it will be. And that's very, very unfortunate. I would just want to say, finally, that this industry has gone through a lot of change over the last while. And they've come a long way as regards to safety and reducing the risk to inflatable users by submitting their inflatables for annual tests and for, uh, and, and also by by getting qualified as operator and attendance courses, uh, uh, operator and attendance of uh, inflatables by doing courses and such like. And the industry is very aware of our responsibility to reduce risk. And this is very unfortunate, but we hope, we hope that we can bring it forward and make something positive. I hope it. And avoid this disaster. Yes, I really do hope it works out for you, Shane McBride and Pelican and Jerry Frawley and your constituent members as well. Have to leave it there, lads. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Do appreciate it. And delighted to highlight this for you. Jerry Frawley there uh, from the Irish Inflatable Harris Federation from Navin and Shane McBride is in Dundalk, co-owner of Pelican promotions there what a loss they'll be because I know an awful lot of people avail of them and enjoy them and they're fantastic and they do a great job and they're very conscious of safety and I'm sure the lobbying goes on as well with uh, politicians and up to government level as well to try and get a focus on this once and for all you know payments payouts we heard it last week a judge last week threw so many out of court and I tipped my cap to her she did a fine job there but more and more this has to be looked at because if not, the bounce will be gone from the castles. The Lion Sleeps Tonight. Louise, the reason we played that, it's my little request today, because 
I was at the Lion King, the new version, on Saturday. And before I talk about that, let me tell you, do you know, I think that version you played there was The Tokens. 1961, that song was released. It's the same bloody age as me. I love it. It's great. I think there's only one version where you can actually, like all over the internet, there's only one version that you can see members of the band singing it. Okay, the originals. Yeah. The tokens. Because the one I would remember, to be honest with you, how could I remember it in 61, was the 82 tight fit in 1982. It went to number one in the UK charts. It was a big, big hit in the early 80s. That's right. I remember that one. Okay. And that's the one I remember. But anyway, it was in the movie on Saturday. Yes, it's part of the new Lion King movie. What do you think? Well, firstly, it was Ava, my granddaughter, gave me a call and said, Gang, gang, would you like to go to the cinema? And I said, when? She says, Saturday. What time? Half twelve. Middle of the day. But when Ava says, gang, gang, you're coming to the cinema. Sure. You couldn't say no, could you? No, I couldn't. So off I went. And when we were going down, just tell you a little aside, she says to me, gang, gang. You wait till you see the size of the television screen no. that's in here and the noise of it. <laughs> anyway, myself, myself, and <laughs> yes, she got the whole works. I headed off to see it. What did I think of it? Um, the jury's out in my book. In one way, I enjoyed it. The an- the real animals. See, it's done now with real animals rather than animation. Rather than right. animation. Oh my god, like that. They've changed the voices. You know, there's one original voice. The others are changed. How can anybody do the voice of Scar and the Lion King if they're not Jeremy Irons? He's brilliant. Just can't. It can't be done, to be honest with you. And in the middle of the movie, Minnie Me started to roar and cry Aww. when the Lion King died. Oh, I said to Sarah, I think I don't think this is a great idea. Did you not and he, cry? Well, no, I have to say I didn't because I suppose I've been through it many times. But here's the irony. I remember taking Sarah when she was a wee girl and Jared, my son, and Mary myself went along. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. To see the original Lion King when it came out and was released in the cinema. And what an effect that movie had on me. You know, the circle of life. I do not think you can recreate, no matter what you want to do or change it or whatever, you can't remake Something a classic. Like that. You just can't. Have and you I've ever seen a film, a remake? 
that you've said that's actually uh, better. I, I don't think so. You know, no. I, or you know, prequels or sequels or this type of thing or remaking. There's been a number of makings of several movies, but I think you're right, Louise. I just think you can't remake them. I think I, it's laziness. Mm, I, come up with original content, yeah, I don't know what it is and Disney are doing this with a number of their classics as well but I saw it actually reviewed yesterday in the Sunday Independent and it got one star oh that's that is a pretty poor review to be honest with you for The Lion King I have to say I don't like remakes in, as a rule but mm. I like the Cinderella one years ago did you I yeah. loved it mm. yeah no I, I was reading right. uh, up on it since and, and there have been one or two that that, that get the approval alright but I don't know. No, you could have watched this in 3D. But jeepers, we couldn't watch it in 3D. Should oh yeah, <laughs> Sarah oh. been out and, and even gone out the door. You know what I mean? If you want those animals coming towards you, I'm sure it's marvelous to watch it like that. But at the end of the day, no different voices. The songs were all there, like your one there, "A Whim Away" and uh, "The Lion Sleeps Tonight." But nah, uh, leave uh, well enough alone. Let the lion sleep. Hmm. No need to remake The Lion King. That's my verdict on it anyway. Maybe it's different. You know, it's very subjective movies as well and what you feel about them. But that's my honest gut feeling about it. Uh, what else was I to say to you? I was up in, as you know, in Port Rush on Friday. We were talking about it earlier on. I believe it didn't rain up there. Well, you know, the rain came on Friday late in the day in Port Rush, but half three, to be honest. We were in early in the morning and it, it was sort of more a drizzle then than anything else. But boy on the way home must have been around 8 o'clock of that we hit North Louth crossing okay. the border I'll never for the life of me forget <laughs> the rain and it continued all the way home and it, you know how bad, you know how heavy it was the cobble lock driveway sure it's cleaned <laughs> it must have been ferocious you were going the other direction were you? I was you going were up to north. Donegal and oh. I actually got soaked inside the car the rain was that heavy I wait till I tell you a good one I got a call from our own Seamus Farley yes and he was saying, Howard, thunder and lightning, absolutely terrible in Clarehead. What are you doing in Clarehead? I'm under the canopy. He went and but to buy fish and chips in Clarehead <laughs> in that rain. <laughs> Colin Corrigan was telling me a story in this morning. Uh, Colin was at the dogs, of course, Friday night in Dundalk. And uh, it was ferocious, he said, there mm. as well. But a dog from the north, I think down Patrick or somewhere, went ballistic. You know, the lightning and thunder drives dogs mad. So they put him into the traps. <laughs> He ran away with the race. <laughs> <laughs> he tore around the track. <laughs> ran like was he the favourite? Not at all. They couldn't get him into the into the in, into the transport. When they finally got him in, when they opened and the hair came round, boom! He was gone like a rocket. So I think Callum was saying to the owner, "Could we arrange a little thunder and lightning every time he's going to run?" <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that they could just replay it. Be an Irish Derby winner. <laughs> <laughs> Anne's been on to say, "Jerry, you'll never beat the Jungle Book." Ah, that's another lovely oh, movie. Oh, brilliant, yeah. Uh, the original, I take, and of The Jungle Book as well, you're talking about, because yeah. there's been a remake. There's been uh, a remake of most of those. Yeah, classes, most Dumbo of them. I have everything. to agree with you, Jungle Book is wonderful, and it is wonderful, and I, I just don't think we can go away from the brilliance of the animation. You know, look at Toy Story, look at Toy Story, and Toy Story 4 out now at the moment, and they've all been brilliant as well, but... I'm just not sure about this, but there you have it. As you said, what's behind it? I don't know. Maybe it's just a... Uh, I think they're even remaking, apart from Disney, but they're remaking Scarface. Like, how can you get another Al Pacino? No, 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 you can't. You'll always compare it back to the original. You certainly will. Pay phones a thing of the past. Did you see that the weekend? There's only no. a few hundred of them left in Ireland now. Do you know where there's a pay phone? Is there a pay phone? Could, if I said, they're you using know, them all for defibrillators now, aren't they? 
think that, well, that, that we had that story, yeah. of course, out in Julian said that's the phone boxes, but even any type of pay phone, you know, and you'd see them when they were mounted on the, the posts, you know what I mean? Three or oh, four yeah, of them yeah, round, yeah, you know, yeah. those type of yeah, ones without yeah. the box gotcha. or anything like that. Yeah. We just read that story the weekend that we're down to a few hundred now in the country. Sure, who has them? You know, that's... Why would you use them? Why would you use them anymore? Do you remember a time you'd be queuing for them? Do you ever remember yeah, the queues the for the pay phones? Yeah, do you remember the card yeah. phones as well? Yeah, you get your card pay so much of it and you could make so many calls as well. Ah, the times they are changing. And the boxes were terrible. There was filthy. Oh, <laughs> think about it. I'll tell that little story again when I was a kid on the North Road and my good friend Donald Sexton, he's been in New York for years now working. I've met him a few times he's been home. He's done really well for himself. But Donald lived down the road from us on the North Road and there was one kiosk at the top of George Street. I think I told this story before, but if, in case you haven't heard it and if you're bored, you're, you know the story, you listen to it again. <laughs> he set up a little phone system in his house. He wired the house for phones, but he had no handset. So down he went to the kiosk <laughs> and cut the handset off the kiosk <gasps> and brought it home and wired it. He did not. Yeah. Wired, he a- wired it off. Yeah, yeah. And then, he- then, then he had a panic attack. I said to him, what if someone has a heart attack? I said, oh, I never thought of that. What am I going to do? I can't put... So he rang the P&T and reported <laughs> <laughs> the handset stolen in the phone box. <laughs> Brilliant. And I think they didn't come for it. And he was ringing them again. to Get up here and fix that phone box. Somebody could die. And he was ringing them on the handset that he was after cutting out of the phone box. They are little ditty from the past. Anyway, late lunch, LMFM Radio. We're heading to a break. Bobby McCormack is with us next from Development Perspectives. And... It's very interesting what they're getting involved here locally in Ireland around the whole area of refugees. Refugees, You'll be interested, I promise you. Promise you. Stay with us on Late Lunch. It's in the news quite regularly and has been for a number of years. You know, our system here of processing asylum applications and providing accommodation centres for applicants, it's been heavily criticised, yet there's a big defence of the system as well by people who administer it and who've been part of putting it together and say that it's significant and it's important for local communities that this happens and this particular system we have is in place. News of a new development in Ireland and it's very interesting and I wanted to have a chat about it today on the show and Development Perspectives are a great organisation. We've talked to them many times on Late Lunch before and sure he's synonymous with them. He's with us today. Bobby McCormick, you're very welcome back to the show. Cheers, Jerry. Thank you. Tell listeners about this, just in essence what it is and what DP are becoming involved with here. Sure. So I suppose Development Perspectives has been involved in education for many years now, but in particular, we've turned our attention on this project to programme refugees. And I think the vast majority of the communities across Ireland sometimes mix up asylum seekers, refugees and programme refugees. So so our aim on STIRE is to work with programme refugees. Essentially, there's around a thousand of them in, in Ireland and they have come through a third country, mostly Lebanon. So we're going to be working with that particular group over the next couple of years, but also the host communities, the communities that they're trying to be integrated into because so many problems can come up if you like, true fears of the unknown, both for the programme refugees themselves arriving into a maybe a strange place, a new country. They don't know much about the areas they're living in and as well, fears from the host community. You know, what do we We've seen pre- that recently bring, yeah. in uh, Donegal, haven't we? We've seen it in Roscommon, was it, lately as well? You know, I think it's over that part of the country anyway. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong about the county. Yeah. But you've seen how people, there seems to be um, a rejection of people yeah. coming in. I, and I think a lot of that is based on fears, but that's where I think the likes of the work of Development Perspectives 
you know, comes in because we can dismantle some of the stories that are there about these groups of people and, and really kind of embrace the possibility of seeing this as a positive, as a win-win. And I'll tell you, watching the Irish under-19 soccer team, going back to that again today in the show, just look at the international aspect of that team that's qualified for the semi-finals of the European Championships. It's it's heartening, isn't it, to see? Well, absolutely. I mean, Ireland's, Ireland's story is about migration. I mean, it's very difficult to remove the Irish story from that of migration. And, and you know, people all across this country are familiar with friends, relatives, family members that have gone overseas and have set up in different parts of the world. Likewise, there are many people from other parts of the world here in Ireland. The human story is one of movement. But sadly, in this particular group, it's movement, not through choice. It's movement because people are fleeing war or persecution. Come back to those three distinct categories of people coming. Just explain those again. Yeah, so the Programme Refugees, which is the group that we're working with, is essentially set up through a UN body. And Ireland has agreed to take in 4,000 Programme Refugees from Syria predominantly. As yet, they've only really taken in 1,000, more or less, 1,000 or 1,100, depending on which way you count it. So the other two groupings, though, asylum seekers are people who arrive in Ireland who are applying for refugee status. But, you know, until they get that, they're asylum seekers and that's where those particular groups would be held in direct provision centres whereas the the programme refugees would be people who've not arrived they've arrived very much as part of the UN programmes so they've already been vetted in other countries in this case Lebanon and the third category you mentioned? So refugees essentially is the, the group that would arrive, say, as asylum seekers, they would then get their applications processed and then would be granted refugee status and then can stay okay. or not, as the case may be. On a case-to-case basis, some of them might be deported back to. But this which, this programme you're involved with and br- are bringing and rolling out on the ground here is part of the overall, there's an umbrella, as you mentioned there, yeah. and the different categories are within that. And this falls under that umbrella yeah, so of people seeking asylum or people coming here from other lands to put down roots on their lives. Well, these people have have essentially fled war in Syria. And they'll never go back. Well, at some stage they might do. Okay. Yeah, but but I wouldn't say in any time <laughs> yeah. soon they're going to. Yes. Do. So they they this particular group would have basically migrated, moved to Lebanon because they were fleeing okay. persecution and war. Yes. And then they would have been in camps in Lebanon okay. and applied then for refugee status. But as part of the UN program, they would then be offered Ireland as one, if you like, place. So there's around eleven hundred of those people. So they already arrive not having to apply for any status. They are already program refugees once they arrive in Ireland. And have they any choice in opting for the country that they come to or how does that work? So it's quite complicated at a UN level how that process is done but they they have very little if any choice about where they're allocated. However there there are some circumstances like so say existing family members would be one criteria that they could bring into the equation but it's not a case that they have a list of countries and they can pick where they want to go that's not the case. And I can only imagine what it's like first of all to be displaced by war from your country from Syria then living in a neighbouring country in these camps and we know the conditions there at times are very difficult and then you're taken from the Middle East and here you are put on an island on the periphery of Europe with very different weather very different people different language different culture 
this can't be easy. No, it's not. And that's where, I suppose, Star comes in. That that challenge and that range of challenges is what we're trying to deal with. Like you say, you have everything from language, religion, culture, all those types of challenges. But it's a two-way challenge because many of these people want to kind of fit into their new communities, their new homes. But they also then maybe face some resistance and some issues that maybe the local community might have about this particular group of people. So it's trying to, from development perspectives point of view, engage with both communities and work working with both communities to break down any fears that they might have of each other, provide supports for the programme refugees and to work with the host communities through some of the issues that they might be having as well. It makes eminent sense that this uh, link is made and and both sides are, are catered for. What way will it work practically? Tell yeah. us about this. So I suppose initially what we're doing is doing some research with programme refugees, but also with the services that work with them, because we really want to identify n- not what we think their problems are, but actually what their problems are. So even from a language point of view, we're in the process of like hiring interpreters to make sure it's not just done through English, because some of the people might have very limited English, but done through Arabic as well. So that's an important first step. But then there's a, a range of workshops that we're going to be doing with the host communities and with the programme refugees around simple things like, you know, how do you work with the guards or the health service or social welfare? How do you access these things if you need to? If your son or daughter is not well, it's easy for us to know if you've lived in a country for a long time, what you do. So so those types of very practical issues will be dealt with. But we're also then going to move beyond that and start looking at capacity building training for a lot of the services, like, say, county councils. Because some of the sensitivities that need to be borne in mind around even things like religion. So what days do you offer these services could be an issue that's overlooked. Um, Some of the gender issues that could come up as well. So there's a lot of sensitivities that would need to be kind of worked with. Um, And then we would also have, uh, hope to have exhibitions, photographic kind of exhibitions around people's lived stories. So it'll be an opportunity for the programme refugees to tell their own story about their life experience, but also for the host communities to do likewise, to tell the story of of Balahadrine, of Clonee, of Drogheda, and to explain what it means to live in this community, this new community. And again, we can take for granted what we know about our own homes, but sometimes explaining that to someone whose first language isn't English can be challenging. So sometimes using visual material can be worthwhile. You mentioned all those things, and it's only when you say them that it's, you know, the penny drops at me, and I'm sure with a lot of people, step back and think about this for a minute. What's all that's involved here for these people? The other thing then is if they have children, you have the education system to, to be dealt with and how to get into that. Mm. Then I'm sure people who are coming here and want to put down routes, you have accommodation, you have work. You know, yeah. people want to work. Absolutely. You know, there is a view, Bobby, and maybe you'd answer this, and you'll see it here when you talk about it on yeah, radio, yeah. and you'll see these comments coming yeah. in say that people are coming here just to live off the system. Yeah. I mean, do you know what? I, I can understand where some of these comments come from, but I, I think it's important to, to take them on board and to tackle them. I mean, Peter McVerry is an interesting man in the sense of his legacy of work with the McVerry Trust. The, the groups that are vulnerable in society are not in competition for support. The homeless people who are living in Ireland are not in competition with those seeking refuge. The, these groups of peoples can live in solidarity with each other and I think it's in Ireland's best interest to live up to the reputation of our nation that we support those that are vulnerable and that we support those that are seeking help. Um, but I suppose what we need to also you know, keep in mind is that some of the fears that people have are not really well founded. So you hear these stories of people getting all sorts of things and nothing could be further from the truth. People who are a programme refugee has the exact same rights and entitlements as anyone from Ireland. 
I don't really receive many handouts. I don't know about yourself, Jerry, but uh, anyone certainly not. Like I think it's a case that we need to kind of stand back from what is available, and I think it's it's very little. But at the same time, it's welcome for those that are fleeing persecution and war. These people have faced very very traumatic circumstances in their life so far, and and by being in a country that is much more stable, much more secure, that gives them a real opportunity to restart, reboot their life opportunities. And I think. You know, Ireland's history has shown us to be a hospitable people. And, and I think although people can have fears, I think we need to make sure that we tackle the stories, the likes of Trump and the likes of Boris Johnson and some of that narrative, which is really founded in nothing other than fiction, really. Shocking, isn't it, when you think that some of the most powerful people in the world, especially Trump, can get away with the type of language he uses and the insightful language as well. I think it's it's shocking and it's very disappointing and, and sad. I mean, I, I heard a story today, though, about the, the White House's own um, clergy, if you like, more or less condemning what Trump has been saying over the last few weeks. And I think the likes of Angela Merkel and her own uh, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, they've, they've stro- spoken out quite strongly in saying that this isn't the way really to conduct politics. This isn't the way to, to really run a modern state. It's it's going back to a time, I think, of, of World War II-esque scenarios where you're, you're putting people against each other and opposition and there's really no need for it it escalates division and I think we know from history division leads to dark places haven't they short memories Trump you know the son of an immigrant himself and mm. look at his family as well and his relationships with people who've come from all over the world anyway we'll park that and leave it for another day so practically for DP development perspectives how is this going to work where do you fit into this yeah, so we're, we're one of six organisations from across Europe that are working on this together. So the lead applicant is Sudvind, an Austrian NGO. So we received funding through the European Union to do STIR. STIR is the, uh, supporting the integration of the resettled. So essentially, over the next two years, we'll be working with communities right across Ireland that would be hosting programme refugees and working with those programme refugees directly. And as I said, we'll have a range of activities going from online to websites and that type of activity right through to workshops, seminars, training and capacity building for, for staff that would work with this group of people because it is it is a, a quite a unique group that, that are not the same as every other group that let's say county council or HSE would be in, you know, meeting every day. So it's making sure that they're conscious of some of the issues that would be involved in doing that. Uh, comment coming to us, as you can imagine, I did say it, and I, I expected it as well. In fairness, with limited housing stock, immigrants and homeless people in Ireland are in direct competition, says Shane. Yeah, I completely disagree, as would Peter McFerry, that it's a government choice to allocate housing on, on whatever way it sees fit. The, the, the housing issue can be solved. It's it's really disappointing that it hasn't been so far, but that's not because we don't know how to do it. It's a, it's a choice on the government's part. So I don't think we should blame uh, refugees, programme refugees, numbering a thousand people for a problem that our government should take hold of. Another one there says, Jerry, these refugees have been dumped in remote parts of Ireland. It's not fair on them or the local residents, as there are no facilities set up for them before they arrive. This is what yeah. this, in a way, is all about. This initiative, isn't it? Tying into this. I mean, it, that that comment, That's Jim. Is, there, thanks, Jim. Yeah, I think Jim makes a fantastic comment. I mean, these EROC centres, these emergency response centres, if you like, uh, reception centres. Sorry, they, 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 their location of them again is not something that we would have been in control of. The government would have taken the decision to 
put these places in, you know, where, where they are. And I don't think it's ideal. But that lends itself to then to some of the challenges that are being faced, because what you might have in Balahadreen or in Dungarvan or Clonee is quite small communities now with an added number of people. And it's it's kind of a case that unless you deal with some of the challenges that's going to emerge from this integration, other issues could emerge, both from an, an educational point of view. So how does the local teacher deal with X, Y or Z coming from this? How does the local doctor deal with X, Y or Z that might be, um, you know, presented because of the fact you've now got a number of people who don't speak English? Mm. The, these are the practical issues that Steyer is trying to manoeuvre and work through. As an NGO, we, we can't solve all of it. We're very much in terms of working in partnership with the statutory agencies to try and do a better job. Back to the beginning before we end, uh, direct provision, you know, asylum seeking, as I mentioned in the introduction, it has a lot of critics. It is people saying, well, it is what it is. What else can we do in this circumstance? What do you make of people who are in there really long term, you know, and have no manoeuvrability at all? Yeah, I think it's a real shame. I, I live next door to Mosny, Jerry. I've been there for, for like 12 or 13 years and I've seen and become friends with people that are still travelling up and down that road for I don't know how long. And and I think we need to process the cases far quicker. And if that means that we, we do it in a way that like we need more resource to do, then I'm in favour of that. But the direct provision centre, uh, the whole way of doing things, I think in 20 or 30 years time will be looked back upon with real shame. I think mm. that, you know, I, I just think we've had so many issues in the recent past where we're looking back at history saying, well, how did this go on? I think that direct provision is one of those that we'll be looking back at in 20 years time wondering, why are we doing it like this? We could improve it, we should improve it. Um, and, and I think that it's a lose-lose scenario. The people who are in there for far too long are losing out on, on such valuable time because they're being kept in limbo. And it serves no part of the community, which is the real shame. You're not the first that have mentioned that to me and uh, you know it is a real marker for the future. It's something that does need to be tackled. So this is happening now straight away? Yeah, and luckily enough we've started in the last couple of months and, and two project staff are, are you know working now as we speak in terms of rolling out these activities. So if anyone's interested in becoming involved or finding out more about STIRE, information is available on the Development Perspectives website. You're great people, I always say it. And uh, thank you for joining us today, Bobby, to tell us about a wonderful initiative that's happening and a real good one and well thought out and good luck to you all with it. Thanks, Cheers, Bobby. Thank, thank you. you. She is to be the guest this very evening of the Drogheda Creative Writers. They have an open mic happening tonight and she's done us the honour of popping into late lunch beforehand to give you a little taster. Polly Richardson, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you for joining me this afternoon. I have to say, I love poetry and I don't have poetry or poets enough on the show with me. Now, you are an interesting woman because in terms of, you know, the lifespan of a poet, you're not really at this too long. No, no, just over seven years. What brought you to it? Uh, that's a very... Uh tricky question that one but I'll answer it the best way I can um, I had returned back to study uh, oh, in between I think child one and two to do animal care and the intention was to go on and to pursue a dream of veterinary nursing um, and it was during that particular course I had A met with another writer that was actually on the course and B uh, my I think it was communications teacher 
happened to be a poet. I didn't know it at the time. And here we go, I've rhymed myself there. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time, who she was or anything, or that her paths would cross later on. But she saw something in me. Now, I was quite scientifically orientated at the time, very analytical, very matter-of-fact mind, because I was studying biology and that really drove me. And she just said something to me, handing back one of my assignments. Um, if I just, just switch off the scientific part of my mind, there's something more in-depth in there. I didn't know what she meant. It wasn't right, whatever. And I think one of the, the, the guys I was with um, either heard that or whatever and going, you know, she's right. And we were sitting in a coffee shop, I think. And there's a packet of sugar that had something on the back of it, like a, like a quote. And one of them just threw it at me. He goes, go on, write something on that. And it did. And, and the rest is history. Yeah, well, kind of, yeah. Off you go on Off this I journey. Went. But roll back then. You know when you're going through school and mm-hmm. education and sure. you have to study your poetry and yeah. poets as well. And, you know, you said you had something. Did you feel you were versatile? I'll use the puns here now. <laughs> at that stage, you know, or were you inspired by that poetry? I would have been inspired. I wouldn't say versatile. I know I was kind of very much living in my own imaginative world. I loved reading. Um, I had plenty of friends and stuff but I did love that world that words could bring you to Mm. Um, we did as I said to you earlier when we were chatting we did do elocution in school and a lot of that was poetry driven where you were performing a little bit like a fesh but you were performing poems off uh, by heart in a certain tempo in a certain rhythm and we competed against schools so whether that ingrained something in me I loved it um, went on into secondary school, loved English, loved, absolutely loved when we got our copy of Soundings. But it was more, wasn't fortunately the likes of Seamus Heaney or Patrick Kavanagh that, that brought me to the love of poetry. If I can remember the very first poem I read in that book was Daryl Hannah, very like um, Christy Brown. He had suffered severely with cerebral palsy and it was his poem about his life that triggered me deeply. Mm. And I can't remember it, but I know it resonated and still to this day I have that copy of the book at home and I've often read it several times I haven't thrown it out and that just sent me possibly on a journey that here I am Here you are today these seven years later and your first collection is imminent Now you've written extensively you've been published extensively you've talked about it you've delivered evenings like you are this very evening but you know when you've thrown the sugar and the quote and you write something and then you put something together I'm curious, who do you read that to? Or how does it take off from there? How does it take off from there? Well, first of all, obviously, it's within, in here, in my mindset. When I get it to a certain point, I'm very lucky that I have other writers that I can bounce work off. My writers group is very, very important. I love your writers group. I want to say this on the air. I'm just dying to say this. Yeah, the Navin writers group that Polly's involved with is the Bull's Arse. That has to be the bull in the square in Navin, is it? It is. It is indeed. Yes, yes. <laughs> There's give. a ring about that. The bull's arse. Yeah. I want to say it again. <laughs> yeah, we get it. I a love lot. it. I know a lot of people love the name. Because it's, it's very diverse. <laughs> we love it too. We love it too. But we, we've a fantastic group there now at the moment. I think we've up to 17, possibly 18 members. And in the last month or two, we were getting nearly every session gathering a new member coming in, which is great. We're very diverse because not just poets, we've story writers, we've sung uh, lyricists, we've got spoken word artists. Um, we have just, it's just a great gathering of like-minded people that work. Mm-hmm. And it's those people that give you the um, the voice you need back on your own work. Yes. The, the extra eyes. 
Yeah. You, you need that. No writer can write without that because mm. you can become quite attached to your own piece. You know, it's like, it's like your, your baby. <laughs> it's great. I love it. Sure, everyone else will love it. But exactly. let's run it by somebody. I hear what you're saying. Will you read for me? Come on. Let's, I will. Let's yeah. hear what you're about. Read your first one. I will. I will. This one is called And Then Hooves. And it actually is from the Book of the Trail, which was put together by Drahada's creative writer groups based on the poetry trail that featured in last year's Black Hill. Okay. So I was lucky to have two poems in that. And what they had done, fair play to them, they'd gone around and took all the contributors' poems and put them up in shop fronts and all over the place. It was marvellous. I it remember it. fantastic. Yeah, wonderful. But then they went back and got back the posters. And mm. I was lucky to get one of mine back with the book. And then they put the book together. It was launched Oh, the beginning of the month, I think, um, in the the, gallery, the arts gallery. So I couldn't make it, unfortunately. I was supporting another cause at the time. So this is great to be able to read this poem. Um, and just a big thanks to the guys at Drahada's Creative Writers Group because they have invited me down this evening and I'm absolutely looking forward to meeting them all again and sharing some work with them. So this is called again? And then Hooves. Waves lap, bringing you in on tides despite being cast out with new moon only to return. Hooves beat to my rhythm, chinking chassis, drawing weightless, feathered to warm breeze, hugged to this, my bay. Standing, dangling blinkers, grooming strands, sinking into myself, catching shooting star, each inhalation filling rising green canvas from sands glowing under prominent light. And then hooves, chinking chassis, drawing weightless. Waves lap, bringing just tides. Receding, receding, receding. You have a way with words, that's for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Delivered beautifully. Thank you. I enjoyed that. I try to do that one off by heart sometimes. I've, I've only started actually performing my poems, mm-hmm. as in learning them mm. and delivering them. Up until now, I've... Yes. reading them and I have to give the credit actually for that kick in the bum from Breffany Hulin who runs Good Time Thursdays here in Drogheda and Angel Hannigan who runs The Collective in Dublin both of them were very encouraging because it's not an easy thing to do to let go of the, the, the book or the phone or, or, or the phone you know it's like a little security blanket and I did I took the challenge and I think I've up to about five off by heart if I really put my mind Terrific. to it and I'm doing a set I can Blast mm. them out. But then there's also poems that need a reading. Mm. And I like to, to gift that, I suppose, or, or give the reading. I, I don't like to stand up and preach my yeah. poems. I like to sit. But you deliver that as you created that in your mind. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's a, it must be special to deliver oh, it. That in, is. That, yeah. Well, that particular piece yeah. is where that came from, where it was born. Like, that's just, that's probably one, one of my most few personal pieces. Um, I happened to be in the Isle of Man when I was, was writing this. Went over with the poet friend. Uh, for the first time, I had everything at my fingertips because the room I had looked out onto the promenade. The horses were up and down. Then I had the rolling green hills left and right. And then there's motorbikes. What more could I have wanted at that particular time? But that was that was that that came from that. And I think we were talking about earlier about inspiration. The sea for me is very much an inspirational place to go to. Horses would because they're a big, big part of my life. I had 25 years working with them. I don't work with them anymore. They always feature in. Not always metaphorically, not always um, straight up, sometimes metaphorically, sometimes not always meant to be the horse, but they'll find their way in. Um, I think looking back when I was putting together my collection, there's an awful lot of mention of moon and stars and 
animals will come into it, nature will come into it, but they're all very diverse and all very abstracty. There's not one that's the same as the other. Mm. Whereas some poets will have a natural way and they'll kind of you could see their 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 voice going through. Mine are quite different because I can even cross over into the spoken word aspect of it, which I like to play around with as well. I like going and doing a performance piece. Um, I've yet to do it properly in a proper spoken word environment, but I'll get there. Of course you will. Yeah. But you see, obviously, in your mind's eye and you see in a physical sense as mm. well, and the inspiration comes from combinations and... Mm. Do you lock yourself away? How do you do it? Do you lock like to be quiet? Away. Oh, I love my own space. Yeah. I love my own time. I've always have done. It's a question of getting the right balance with the um, with the right people and my alone time. I love nothing more than walking the ramparts in Navan or Blackwater Park, if I can, even when it's raining, or just shutting myself away. I'm going to give a little plug now because uh, Ode and Navin are very good to me. Stephen Carroll's fantastic. Leaves me alone in my little corner where I tend to go and read there and edit in there. I'll write in the library in Navin and um, there's a few other little spots I kind of frequent and I kind of just go quiet and sit in the corner. I love writing in pubs. The Royal is a really nice spot to write, to write in and the Central, which are fantastic. That's our new home. We meet upstairs in the Ruby Room every second Wednesday. I love just sitting in there and just writing away. So a quietness in public. Come on, you have another one there because time will be oh, okay, if we don't yes, get you reading again. Do. What have you for me? Your second one today. And just reminding you that Polly Richardson is appearing this evening at half past seven in Sarsfields pub on the Cord Road in Drogheda. It's the Drogheda Creative Writers open mic evening this evening and she'd love to see you there. Okay, so what have you for me now? This one is Egg. It's actually an Easter prompt that we did in my group, The Bull's Arse. We'd set a prompt each gathering and it's up to each writer if they want to write something on it or not but this was my interpretation of it um, and I like it I really do actually egg one half sustenance penetrative probably unholdable glop between fingers life's possibility lip sucked from safety of limp- implantations bear itself nude like watching sun spread as if melt away butter, surrendering to dirt, taking grit along the way. Compostable. Do they know? Sticky messes where it all began before, before, hunted. Artistic foundations hatching priceless, blood spilled, painted pavements. One crack crushes inner euphoria. Always wondered why rabbit. From encasement, hatchlings disregards despite incubation. Bounches. Some dormant, redundant, birthing what-ifs. In dreams, nurse nuzzle snuffles, sit under rainbow and sail. Each time at sunrise, conscious wonders washes over. Till full beam exhale, selecting today's smile to dress. And carry forward laughter, linking that unfillable void. Remembering, she too once was egg. Unholdable glop between fingers. You're a good egg. <laughs> and if you want to see her, she's on tonight in Sarsfields in Drogheda Cord Road, half past seven with Drogheda Creative Writers. Polly Richardson, look forward to your collection. Thank you for joining Thank me on the show too. and wish you well tonight and again on Thursday uh, with the Good Time Thursdays. Absolutely. Good Thanks, to meet Jerry. you. Take care of yourself. That's a lot on late lunch for this Monday afternoon and we leave you in the company of the Beatles. Love me do and love us do tomorrow again on late lunch from half one.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.